Last chapter, I appreciate Brother Tanner preaching. Chapter 24 did a great job last Sunday night. But let me remind you what happened in, in 1 Samuel 24. Saul, the king at this time, unknowingly as he's chasing David, found himself in the same cave that David and his men were in. And, and he had to go to the restroom. And, and uh, I, I forgot what the, what did he call that? Covered his feet? Is that what they call it, Tanner? Yeah. yeah. So he made himself basically a sitting duck uh, for David. And David, when he realized that, that Saul was there, had every opportunity to catch him in a very vulnerable time and kill him. Tanner taught us that, that David remarkably was able to restrain himself, even in the midst of the peer pressure from his own men, was able to keep himself from, from harming Saul. And we're going to see next Sunday night, he's going to do the same exact thing again in chapter 26. Because David in chapter, in chapter 24 and in chapter 26, he understood God's purpose for his life. And he understood the principle of waiting on God's timing for God's purpose in his life. And he was able to show self-restraint. But sandwiched in these two episodes, in between these two episodes where David showed such great self-restraint, is chapter 25. And there's no restraint at all. See, what happened is David is wronged by a man named Nabal to a far less degree than he was wronged by King Saul. Yet instead of inquiring for, from God for guidance like he did in chapter 23 through Abathar the priest, instead of showing self-restraint and control like he did in chapter 24, watch, David let his personal offense become a capital offense. And he seeks revenge instead of restraint. That's where the title of our sermon comes in tonight. I'm titling the sermon this, God's Restraining Grace. God was not going to let the anointed king become like the rejected king. So when he saw that David was struggling to restrain himself, he helped him. In this chapter, God isn't going to save David from Saul like he's been doing. God's going to save David from David. I want to show you four verses by way of introduction in this chapter that give us a preview of God's restraining grace in David's life at a time when he was struggling to restrain himself. Look at verse 26 of chapter 25. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand. Look at verse 33. And blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou which hath kept me this day from coming to shed blood. Verse 34. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee. Verse 39, and when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and hath kept his servant from evil. Do you see how God stepped in and restrained David, kept him back from behaving foolishly? Hey, listen, this should be encouraging to us tonight. Here's why. Because it teaches us this truth. God gives us restraining grace when we struggle to restrain ourselves. You need to recognize tonight that God not only saves you from the devil, and he not only saves you from the world, and he's not only saved you from eternal destruction and hell, but above all, he saves you from you. 
I don't believe tonight that the devil's your biggest enemy. I don't believe the world is your biggest enemy. I believe you are your biggest enemy. And God knows that. So he offers his restraining grace to you and to me when we struggle to restrain ourselves. So we're going to walk through this narrative together. I think we're going to learn how desperately we need God's restraining grace in our lives. We're going to see what it looks like when his restraining grace comes and how we need to respond when it does. First 12 verses. Let's read them together. I'll read aloud and you follow along. And Samuel died. And all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man of my own whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep. Now pay attention to this because it's introducing our characters. And a thousand goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. The name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish. She was stubborn and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out 10 young men. And David said unto the young men, get you up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you say to him that liveth in prosperity, peace be both to thee and peace be to thine house and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers. Now thy shepherds, which were with us, we hurt them not. Neither was there aught missing unto them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand and to thy servants and to thy son David. And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants, watch this, and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Son of Jesse, he called him what Saul's been calling this whole time. If you called someone the son of so-and-so, that was an insult. He insulted him. He said, there be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh? Notice all the pronouns, I and my, that I have killed for my shearers and given unto men whom I know not whence they be. So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. Now there's some things in there you might not understand because they're so culturally relevant to that time. See, David and his men were still hiding out in the caves of Judah. And because of their fugitive lifestyle, they had to find um, work any way that they could. And one particular way that they earned food was by acting as a security force or security team of sorts for Nabal's flocks and shepherds. Nabal didn't go search out David and his men to do this. This is something David and his men did because they wanted to hopefully get some of the earnings from Nabal's flocks. See, the reason why there was a group of men in these days like David that that did these things was because there was these like field pirates of sort that would raid farmers' crops and animals. In fact, chapter 23 talks about how the Philistines raided the threshing floors at Keilah. So what happened is the farmers would do all the work and the bad guys would come during harvest season and they would get all the goodies. And, And the shepherds couldn't keep them back. So men like David would go around and guard the farmer's shepherds and his possessions and his flocks and his crops from getting stolen during harvest. Does that make sense? So there was technically no promised compensation for this kind of work. But there was an ethical agreement in their culture to provide a few 
crops and maybe some food for men like this. So that's what David expected when the time for shearing the sheep had come. Nabal would have sheared his sheep twice a year. And that's when he would have earned all his money. So David sent some of his men to Nabal to collect their part of the earnings. When they approached Nabal, they weren't greeted with generosity. They weren't even given a tip. They were greeted with selfishness. In fact, Nabal's name means fool. And that's what he was acting like. He told David's men that he wasn't going to compensate them. And he even went so far as to personally insult David for even asking. Now, here's what's obvious to me in the text. David did nothing wrong. Nothing. He unselfishly served Nabal, who was actually, if you study it, a distant relative. He was asking for a, not asking for a bunch of money, just an ethical tip for his service. What Nabal should have done is what you should do if you go to a restaurant and a waiter or a waitress tips you. You will not get legally in trouble if you don't tip them. But you should. You should. And if you don't, don't leave an invite to Fellowship Baptist Church. Well, Nabal should have ethically just gave them a tip of some sort. But he didn't. Watch here. David was treated unjustly by a very selfish man. And this is where we find relevance right off the bat in our text, because the same thing happens to every single person in this room that's breathing. We've all been the victim of unjust treatment from a selfish person. It happens within families all the time. Wives are treated unjustly by their selfish husbands. And husbands are treated unjustly by their selfish wives. Parents are treated unjustly by their selfish children and children are treated unjustly sometimes by their selfish parents. Siblings treat each other unjustly and not just child age siblings, adult siblings. In-laws are treated unjustly by their son and daughter-in-laws while in-laws treat their son and daughter-in-laws unjustly sometimes. You see, it happens within our families. It happens within a church. Church members can be treated unjustly by another church member. Your child can be treated unjustly by, a, by another child at church. A pastor can be treated unjustly by a member, and a member can be treated unjustly by a pastor. It happens at work. Employees can treat employers unjustly, and employers can treat employees unjustly. Businesses can deal with customers unjustly and selfishly while customers can deal with the businesses in our town unjustly and selfishly. Are you with me? My point is to get you to realize that you are in this biblical script because you were treated unjustly by selfish people as a regular part of living. So what I want you to do at the front end of this message is put your own situation into the biblical script. I want you to listen to this message and study this text through the lens of the most current time in which you were a victim of a selfish person treating you unjustly. It may have been in your home or family or church or connection group or peer group or at work. And if you aren't going through a relational difficulty right now, or if you're not having to endure the personal offense of being treated unjustly in the past, I want you to use this message as a means of preparing you for when you will be treated unjustly, because you will. Back to the story where we're going to see that the same guy who's able to restrain himself a chapter ago can't do it now. Look at verse 13. His men come back empty handed. And David said unto his, gird ye on every man his sword. 
And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. David's reaction could be summed up by one word that's used three times in verse 13. The word sword. He wasn't planning on negotiating with Nabal. He wasn't planning on just verbally threatening Nabal. He was planning on killing Nabal and all of Nabal's servants. Watch here. David's first response to being treated unjustly was not restraint, but revenge. And let's be honest. That's typically our most natural response when we're offended as well. When yelled at, we want to yell back. When gossiped about, we want to have the last word. When taken advantage of, we want to break off the relationship. When insulted, we want to fire off an insult in return. When answered with an impatient spirit, we want to answer back with self-defense. When blamed for something we're not guilty of, we want to set the record straight in a forceful manner. When left out or pushed out of a group, we want to resort to self-pity so they feel bad. When not uh, uh, thanked appropriately for our service, We want to quit. That'll show them. We'll just quit. It's not naturally our first reaction to answer anger with a soft voice. It's not naturally our reaction to respond to gossip with humility. It's not naturally our reaction to let our integrity defend our reputation against insult. Or to stay respectful toward a boss that doesn't hear us out before blaming us for something. Or to remain composed and loving toward a spouse that disrespects us. Or to stay happy in the service of the Lord when we're seldom thanked for it. Our natural reaction in the flesh is to turn a personal offense into a capital offense. Our natural reaction is to overreact and seek revenge, not show restraint. And that's what David did. He loaded up two-thirds of his men, all with swords in their hands, and he went to Nabal's house. And what happens next is really the central focus of the text because God's going to intervene and restrain David when David couldn't restrain himself. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. So God allowed one of Nabal's servants to hear about David's plan. And he went to warn Abigail. And right when Abigail heard, she gathered a bunch of food together. She got on her donkey and went out to meet David before he could get to Nabal. And look what what she did in verse 23. Drop down to verse 23. I'm going to sum up some of this narrative so we don't have to read it all. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. You know what she's saying? Let let me stand in for Nabal just for a second and hear me out. Give me an audience real quick. Let me speak to you. And let me sum up what she told David. She told him that the Lord had sent her to intervene and to keep him from murdering Nabal. She reminded David of God's promise to make him king and that it would be foolish to taint his reputation. 
She told David how unbecoming of God's king it would be to murder a man because of a personal offense. And then she urged David to trust God and let God avenge him instead of trying to seek revenge himself. I will say it in one word, wisdom. She intervened with godly wisdom. I want you to see what's happening here. David couldn't restrain himself. He gets angry and impulsive and he's about to become a murderer. Then God steps in and he offers David a way of escape. He steps in not to save David from Saul or not to save David from Goliath, but to save David from David. And reminds me of the promise that the Apostle Paul speaks of, a New Testament promise that we can claim that says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above your able, watch this, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That ye may be able to bear it. God, through Abigail, was giving David a way of escape. See, when God sees us walking swiftly down the road of temptation with no self-restraint whatsoever, he will put a stop sign in our way in order to get us to slow down and think about what we're doing. He will do whatever he can to restrain us when we are struggling to restrain ourselves. And there's only one word for that, grace. It is gracious of our heavenly father that he doesn't let us go our own way without a fight. He doesn't let us go down the path of destruction without a sermon. He doesn't let us make selfish decisions without a godly counselor telling us no. And we get mad at God for doing that. It's his grace. He used the advice of a godly woman, Abigail. Beautiful in countenance, intellectual in mind, obviously pleasant in spirit. And she was God's stop sign to keep David from seeking revenge. And I have found, church, that's often the same way that God's restraining grace works in our life. He sends an Abigail to save you from you and me from me. When you want to walk out of a marriage because you were wronged, And it seems beyond the realm of forgivable. I've seen this happen. God might send some restraining advice your way via another godly wife in your church at just the right time to get you to consider forgiveness instead of revenge. When you've been hurt by a friend and slandered by people you thought you could trust and everything inside of you wants to get on Facebook and passively aggressively call some people out. God may use the restraining advice of a spouse that isn't emotionally invested in the relationship as a stop sign to get you to slow down and take a deep breath before making that post. When you've been treated unjustly at work and you feel like just walking out and finding another job, God might send you some old sage who's been there and done that to tell you to stick it out because unjust leadership is everywhere and you can't run from your problems. When something happens at church towards you that is genuinely unjust and and not right, you may feel like leaving for another church without any restraint at all or just stop coming to church altogether or at best check out at church. Stop serving, stop tithing, stop interacting. God may notice that you're struggling to restrain your flesh from making a foolish decision. So he may send some restraining advice via a sermon. 
that doesn't feel good in the moment, but you know it's just for you. That's grace. God pays close attention to us. He knows how we're wired. He knows how we're framed. He knows the battle we have with our flesh when we're treated unjustly by a selfish person. And he loves us too much to just let us fly off the handle or to let us act impulsively or let us behave irresponsibly without offering us a way of escape. Or throwing a stop sign up in our path. Or causing a piece of restraining advice to hit our ears at just the right time. Are you thankful for that tonight? But this is where it gets tricky. Because while God can intervene with his restraining grace, he won't often make us stop. It wouldn't be a relationship, a two-way relationship, if it was built on force. Our relationship with God is very unique because it's built on love. Love gives the other person a choice. He won't make us listen. He won't make us respond with integrity. See, all Abigail could do for David was give him the truth. It was up to David to respond to it with humility. Let's see what he does in verse 32. She gave her spill, verse 32, and David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me. Surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. That's a term that they used back then. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him. And said unto her, go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy, see that? I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. David humbly received Abigail's advice and he was restrained by it. When I look at his response to that woman's advice, I am convicted. Because I don't think that I often handle corrective advice or restraining advice by saying, bless you. Thank you so much for telling me what I needed to hear, not just what I wanted to hear. Now consider for a moment how hard this must have been for David to receive Abigail's advice. I thought of a couple of reasons why it would be so hard. He had been personally offended. Offended people aren't logical. Hello? Offended people are impulsive. Offended people are emotional. Ask any one of our officers in here. When you're hurt by others is when you hurt others. It's not when you listen. Number two, he already had his mind made up. He had 400 men with swords in their hand ready to kill Nabal. He already told Abigail back in verse 21 and 22, we didn't read it, but he already told her everything he intended to do to her husband. David wasn't flying by the seat of his britches. He had a plan and his mind was made up. How many know it's hard to receive advice after our minds are already made up? I really want to put a sign outside my door that says, if your mind's already made up, don't waste my time. Because I can tell when someone's mind's already made up. The advice, number three, was unsolicited. He didn't ask for Abigail's advice. How many of the advice that is unsolicited is usually advice that is unwelcome in situations like this? If I want your opinion, I'll ask for it, right? Lastly, the advice was coming from a woman. <laughs> I hope we got that on the recording. 
E listen, even in our society today, it's hard for men to receive instruction from women. You know why? Because we're prideful. And we have a big ego. But how much more in a patriarchal society, such as the one David was living in? Put these things together. His emotions were high. His mind was made up. He was being told what to do by a woman that he didn't even ask for her opinion in the first place. Tell me that doesn't make receiving advice incredibly difficult. Right? And the same is true for us when we're offended. The last thing we're wanting to hear is logical, biblical, and unbiased advice. When our mind has already formed a planned response, we don't want to be told otherwise. And if we do seek counsel, we typically seek it from people we know will share in our desire and affirm our plan. We'll find somebody to agree with us at work. Yeah, just walk out and find another job. Yeah, just leave your spouse. You deserve better. Just lie to your parents. They're stupid anyway. Hey, just stand up for yourself and just give everyone a piece of your mind. Yeah, you're right. That, that was a stupid decision the pastor made. You're right. We're really good at finding a tribe that agrees with us and sympathizes with us, but we're not very good sometimes at listening to the people that God uses to restrain us. Not to mention, the restraining advice sent from God can often come from somebody that's really hard to listen to. It can come from a spouse that you feel is nagging you again. And you've already put them in their place and said, you're not God in my life. And so when a wife comes to you and tries to tell you something for the third time because she is led by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to do so and she's being obedient to the Lord and you make her feel about that tall. It can come from a parent that you think is overreacting. It can come from a coworker that never gets treated this way so you don't think their advice is coming from a place of real understanding. They don't get you. And if they've never been where you've been and the boss likes them, they've never felt what you feel, then you're not going to listen to them. It can come from a fellow church member that's been in church a long time, this church a long time, and you're convinced they're too biased to see it your way. It can come from somebody younger than you, and you're tempted to write it off because they don't have enough life experience to give you any good advice. It could come from somebody that is flat out a hypocrite and you know it. They aren't living their life right. So who are they to tell me how to live mine? It could come from this pulpit. And you'd be tempted to get defensive and check out because you think the pastor wrote a sermon just for you. That's why I go next chapter, next verse. So you can't accuse me of that. God's got all that under control. I ate, I ate lunch with a couple today. I told you it's going to find its way in a sermon. And they told me, they interacted with someone that came to our church however long ago. I don't know. I forgot the details. And they said that, that they overheard them talking. Well, it was at J.C. Penney's. So it was when J.C. Penney's was still open. Up negatively about our church. And they overheard them saying this about our church. I'll never go there. You know why? Because the pastor, he looked at me the whole time he was preaching. I want to have a talk with them because I guarantee you they looked at me the whole time I was preaching. I didn't get mad. That ain't fair. <laughs> David preached on this on Wednesday. It's called cognitive bias. If your mind's already made up, it's really hard not to be biased 
And so you've already got confirmed in your mind what you believe is the truth. And anybody sent from God and Abigail to tell you different, it doesn't matter how wise they are, it doesn't matter who they are, you will find a way to make sure what they're saying isn't right. And you'll become a defense attorney really, really quick. How do you know, Brother Tyler? Because I do that. I do it regularly. See, restraining advice at a time of offense isn't easy to receive. Why? We're emotional. Our mind is made up. And the advice is coming from somebody that's hard to listen to in the moment. But here's what I want you to get. Even though it's hard, it's often God's last resort to keep you from doing something or saying something that you'll regret for a long time. And that's what, what can help you receive advice when it feels impossibly difficult to receive in the moment. You can recognize what David recognized, that Abigail was sent from God. It wasn't just a scared woman trying to defend her husband. It wasn't a nagging woman trying to manipulate his behavior. As hard as it was to hear, David knew she was right and, she, and he knew that she was placed in his path to restrain him when he was struggling to restrain himself. Here's how you can listen to advice that would restrain you even when it's really, really hard. You can recognize that all truth is God's truth. And God sends people into your life as stop signs to say, stop, stop. Our default response to the Abigails in our life should not be, oh, they've got to be wrong. Our default response should be, they, they're probably right. In fact, I, I have known this in my life to be true. At the moments in which I'm struggling to accept restraining advice is when I really, really, really need to accept it. When, it, when somebody's talking to me and it's really hard to hear in the moment, that's when I probably need it the most. Well, Pastor Tyler, it's just hard to take the high road sometimes. Even if I know that what I'm being told is the truth and I, I know I should receive it with humility and I, I know I should show restraint instead of vindictiveness, it just gets old taking the high road. Well, I like how the story ends because it gives us a little motivation for why we should show restraint even when it's hard and we're just sick of doing it. Verse 36. So Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. He must have been an angry drunk. She didn't want to talk to him. But it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, watch, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal, that he died and when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. What a smart man. <laughs> See, David listened to restraining advice. And then he reaped the reward of restraint. The reward was twofold. God took care of Nabal and God gave David a pretty wife. It reminds me of the promise in, in Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. 
Just let God take care of it for you. Don't seek revenge, seek restraint and, and watch how God will take care of things a lot better than you ever could. My father-in-law, who is a preacher for over three decades, used to always say this. When you're treated unjustly, hold your head high because everything will eventually come out in the wash. In other words, there's no need for us to try and make things right for ourselves when God promises us that he'll take care of it for us if we let him. Church, has that ever happened to you? You showed restraint and then weeks or months or maybe even years later, you watched as God made things right. Maybe he didn't cause your boss to have a stroke. Or maybe he didn't cause the person that hurt you to go into a coma for 10 days. But maybe he did pull the, the, the strings that you couldn't pull. And change the hearts that you couldn't change. And after he did that, you look back and said, wow, I'm glad I didn't try to pull that string. Or maybe he revealed the things that you so badly wanted to reveal, but you knew you weren't the right person to do it. Maybe he changed the heart of your spouse, even though you were convinced it wasn't going to change unless you became God in their life. Maybe your reputation. God, God made it to look favorable when it seemed that if you stayed quiet about what you were being slandered about, that, that you were going to get a black eye for life. Maybe God caused that employer to change their mind about you, even though you knew you were right the entire time, but chose to not make a stink about it. Maybe God gave you something to replace what was taken away from you. And what he gave you was far better than what he allowed to be taken away. Hey, this is how God works. He gives us restraining grace when we struggle to restrain ourselves. And then if we let that restraining grace have its perfect work in our situation, months or, or even years later, we can step back and we can say this. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I didn't. It would, it's relief instead of regret saying, I wish I would have never had. I don't know about you, but at the end of a, a difficult relational situation, I want to be able to step back and say, I did the right thing. I sleep a lot better at night when I let God handle what I can't handle. So I think the message can boil down to this statement tonight. Showing restraint is always better than seeking revenge. And you have God's grace to help you with that. You just have to receive his grace by way of godly advice or any other stop sign that he puts in your way to keep you from seeking revenge. Can I give you three statements to take home with you tonight? This is my conclusion. Number one, don't, I'm not going to put these on the screen because I just came up with them this afternoon. Don't put a, don't turn a personal offense into a capital offense. I want to say it for those in the back. Loud enough where everybody can hear me. Don't turn a personal offense into a capital offense. I just put it in plain English. Stop overreacting. Amen. Stop wanting so much drama. Is that plain enough? I don't know who this is for tonight, but some people will take what should be at this size and let it grow to this size. It's like, it's like a ball that's flat and the, the, they'll start pumping air into the offense and blow it all up. Listen, your life would be way easier 
If you just let a personal offense stay small. Statement number two, when emotions are high, wisdom is low. So don't make any major decision or response when you're offended. I'll say it again. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. So don't make any major decision or response when you're offended. Amen? The things I regret are the things I've done in my emotions, not being led by the Spirit. Number three, if God is gracious enough to send you some restraining advice, you should be humble enough to receive it. If God's gracious enough to send you an Abigail, you should be humble enough to say, blessed be her advice. As a husband, I need to speak to the husbands in here. I'm really passionate about this because it's changed our marriage. For the first half of our marriage, we've been married 15 years, so seven and a half years, I would say. I did not listen to my Abigail very well. What's crazy is I listened to other people just fine. But I didn't listen to the one person in my life that knew me the best and saw me at my worst. Does that make any sense at all? That makes no sense. Why? I'm prideful. Prideful. And that, that, that put some big time problems in our marriage. Because when she saw that my dad could tell me something that she told me two days ago, and I responded like, oh, that's a good idea, dad. But I was defensive towards her when she told me that. That put some problems in our marriage. We struggled. What I found is that when I talked to her, she always listened to me. But I didn't return the favor. And I, I really think, guys, that leading the home begins with being good listeners and humble men. And one of the key ways that we can love our wife is solicit and receive their advice. Yeah. Because often that, that's an Abigail in our lives. It's a stop sign. Keeping us from doing something stupid or, or, or spending a dumb amount of money or just dumb stuff. And I know I, I, I just don't tend to be as hard on the wise, but you know, it's, it's the same the other way around, by the way. So the ladies can say amen if you agree with me. That ladies, we're to listen to you because God puts you in our life. But listen, you're to listen to your husband too. And God has put them in your life. And guys, it's careful how we approach that. But if we approach it with grace and good timing and good posture, then, then, then ladies, you need to receive with grace what the man in your life is trying to speak into your home or your situation. And man, I could go on and on and on. My heart is just very passionate about this idea of God saying stop and us stopping. And that often comes by way of advice. And so if God's spoken in your hearts, and I hope you'll respond. Um, but by saying, God, help me to listen when listening is really hard. Or at the very least, come and just tell God, thank you for the times when you have stopped me dead in my tracks. God, I have fewer regrets tonight because of the Abigails you have sent into my life. And I want to say thank you for that. Amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.